Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news, live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed in to a concise, informative update. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of January. Coming up, if you drive a diesel vehicle, check. You might have a diluted product in your tank. What the MPC will be discussing this week, why there's a frisson of optimism in the global business community. The latest Johannesburg building fire, one political party has taken the gloves off. And the economics of mixed martial arts after a local fighter is crowned world middleweight champion. Let's start with this, and PwC South Africa's first economic outlook report for 2024 says compared to a year ago, global business leaders are more positive about economic growth in their countries over the next 12 months. At the start of the program is Christy Fulyun, PwC South Africa senior economist. And Christy, first up then, what are the specific factors contributing to the increased optimism? I think one of the key things is just the inflation environment. So we've had elevated inflation for past two years, uh, specifically linked to high commodity prices. And with inflation coming down, there's also the prospect of interest rates coming down. So whether it's for households or businesses, that is always a very good prospect. It means that you can probably get by with a bit more with what your money can actually purchase. And also with interest rates coming down, the debt that you have or the cost of new debt is actually a little bit cheaper. So that's one of the main features why business leaders are a bit more enthusiastic about 2024. Christy, I'm assuming a slightly different picture in South Africa. Well, slightly different. So at the moment, we we do have inflation coming down. We do have interest rates coming down. So from a, a monetary perspective, I guess there's a bit of good news. But obviously, the rest of the fundamental things that we are dealing with are not really at a much better situation than it was at this time last year or even at the end of 2023. So we're thinking about load shedding. We're thinking about the the issues with railway and ports for exports and imports, for example. We're thinking about the long-term structural things like crime, for example. So at the beginning of 2024, those things are still very much with us and very likely going to be with us for quite some time. The report, interestingly, makes some points about how companies in South Africa can use the current situation, though, to create value for their stakeholders. What are you saying? So what we're saying with this report is that aside from all these challenges that we are aware of in South Africa, there are certain trends globally where many countries are facing the same kind of challenges. Now, it's not the same thing, but sort of broad categories. Uh, We all get impacted by conflict. So, for example, Russia-Ukraine situation, what's going on in the Middle East, we all get impacted by that because that impacts supply chains. And what we did with this report is we looked at five specific of these challenges to say this is how it impacts South African companies and these are some of the potential solutions. So in the case of conflict disrupting supply chains, one of the options is localization. In other words, instead of importing an item or importing people or uh, skills or importing capital, you try and look for it locally. You try and develop it locally. You try and support local entrepreneurs, local communities in developing these kinds of value chains. It just removes a bit of risk 
when conflict happens on the other side of the world that disrupts you, if you're more focused on local sourcing, then it does remove some of that risk of, of disruption. It does, though, take a lot of effort and planning, I guess, to actually do that, though, to change the paradigm of, of work operation. Most definitely. So where a company is sourcing goods from, let's say, China, for example, you buy either finished goods or inputs, you get them on a ship and they arrive in South Africa. That system developed over time for good reasons, whether it's cost or quality or whatever the reasons might be. So to change that to a local orientation does take time and effort and resources. We know that. But as we've seen over the past three, four years, both with COVID and some of the other uh, global situations that have disrupted supply chains, this is something that's going to be an issue for a long, long time. We don't know what the next big disruption is, but there's going to be one, maybe this, not this year, but next year. So changing your orientation a bit to be, to looking more local is part of building business resilience for the long term. As I said, these international disruptions, they're not going to go away anytime soon. So South African businesses will continue to be vulnerable to these disruptions unless they have some kind of a program or strategy that involves getting more of a local focus in their sourcing. Christy, the report also references public-private collaboration and models around that, but we don't have a great track record of that uh, in this country, do we? That is true. So public-private collaboration is something we see all over the world for many, many decades, many, many centuries, we can even put it that way, where private sector and the public sector combine their best resources to get the best outcome for a specific industry or community or geography. And you're right, we've had lots of challenges in South Africa figuring out how they work best. And and there's no perfect system. There's no perfect model. Uh, one that we've been looking at is where there is much more of a, a shared responsibility, as there always is, but also when it comes to responsibility for funding, for management, for, for managing the assets, for example, there needs to be equality and equity in that between the public and the private sector. Um, I think in the end goal for these kinds of collaborations must be what is the impact on that community. So we talk about societal impact, and this is where companies need to think, how do I combine the best that I have with government and also the shortcomings on the government side? Because let's be honest, government finances are very much stretched. How do we combine these to have the best societal impact? Because that's the only way that in a local community and then broader, broader areas, broader parts of society, we can have an impact where we actually rebuild South Africa into a more prosperous society. Christy Fulion, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. I want to stay with the economy in the MPC meets this week and after a year of tough living for most of us, homeowners in particular are awaiting the January interest rate announcement with much focus. Johan Els is joining us now on MoneyWeb at Midday, Group Chief Economist at Old Mutual. Johan, a very warm welcome. What's your outlook? Hi, good afternoon. Yes, um, I think there's still going to be some tough talk from the Reserve Bank at this meeting. Uh, about the inflation risks specifically. So it's not going to be the typical hawkish type wording in the statement that we were used to when we were in the midst of the hiking cycle, but still some risks around inflation, especially from food prices, El Nino perhaps, the RAND risk, etc. So uh, that's the job of a central bank, to be fairly conservative, warn about the risks. So this week we're not going to see any changes in interest rates. 
But I think the fact that inflation has come down so much means something different for the meeting after this one. It's always difficult, isn't it, for a central bank, whether it's here or anywhere in the world, to balance that need to control inflation, which you say is under a degree of control right now, with the potential risk of stifling economic growth. In South Africa's particular set of circumstances, how tough is that balance right now, do you think? Yeah, I think it's always tough. Um, But some central banks lean more to one way than others. And I think for the Fed, for example, they've got a more balanced approach. Um, The ECB has recently followed the old German Bundesbank example of being more tough on inflation. And in South Africa's case, um, the Reserve Bank has warned over many years that growth isn't their concern. That should be for government to sort out the structural Um, inhibiting issues around growth. And for them, it's been inflation. And keep on warning that high inflation is detrimental to consumers and especially the poor, and therefore they have to fight inflation. So in South Africa's case, they haven't really given much um, weight to weak economic growth. And of course, until such time as that weak economic growth means inflation will just keep on falling or go into negative territory, then they would. But with our inflation situation as it is, Um, the focus was clearly more on fighting inflation than on getting growth up. You referenced food inflation, uh, which again is one of those risks that you've just cited. Why are we battling to tame that? Well, uh, it it came from the um, post-COVID period when we've had supply chain issues and then we had the start of the Ukrainian war and significant impact on global food prices. But also, typically in South Africa, um, we're just so dependent on weather patterns and we're a very dry country. And then sometimes we are flat. So it's always a very difficult area of the CPI basket to forecast because of these seasonal impacts. And for example, last year, when food inflation was on a downward path, then we suddenly had the avian flu and the impact on chicken and egg prices. And we had floods and droughts and frost etc that had an impact on potato prices and some other vegetable prices for instance now we're heading into a period where people are fearing el nino and droughts fortunately i think um the soil is rather damp we've had pretty good rainfall for over several years plus good rainfall towards the end of last year so i think that should mitigate some of that excess el nino risk so i still do think food inflation for this year should Mm. drift slightly lower, not significantly, slightly, but yes, then there are upside risks mm. and uh, it hurts the poor more than than the rich. I, I guess the consumer at this point will take any kind of uh, assistance they can. Also, the vulnerability of the South African economy as far as oil prices are concerned. Absolutely. Um, we've been lucky thus far with a looming Middle East crisis that oil prices have remained relatively stable and not shooting up. Um, so at least that's helping. And then for this year, if oil prices hold relatively steady, in other words, if there's no big Middle East crisis, um, I do also think that the rand is um, oversold, far too weak relative to its fundamentals. And the global U.S. rate cycle situation should mean um, a drifting dollar, slightly weaker dollar, and that should help the rand. So overall, I think we perhaps in for a slightly better year in terms of um, fuel prices as well, maybe drifting sideways to even a touch lower during the course of the year. So overall, I think, you know, lower inflation, 
and if we get interest rate cuts, as I expect from March onwards, it's not going to be a great year, but it's going to be a slightly better year for consumers than last year. And I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Johan Els, Group Chief Economist at Old Mutual, thank you very much for joining me on MoneyWeb at Midday. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, let's uh, switch tack now from the economy and an investigation by the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy has uncovered that around 70 filling stations across the country are selling poor quality diesel. Abab Fani Chifularo is the executive director of the South African Petroleum Industry. He is with us now on the program. And first of all, how widespread is this problem and why is it occurring? So the... This is a widespread, I mean, uh, problem. Um, it has been growing over a number of years. Uh, we have noticed the the sales, I mean, volumes of paraffin increasing over the number of years, and uh, it cannot be like the paraffin that's used for illuminating papers, uh, because I mean, as you probably know, that the government is running the electrification pro, I mean, program which means more and more households are no longer dependent on paraffin. So if you just look at, like, let's say, some 15 years back, paraffin's uh, volumes were sitting at around about, let's say, 800 million liters per annum. But if you look at 2022, you see they've grown I mean, to the level of 1.4 billion liters per annum. And what is clear is that, I mean, um, you see that, I mean, like the discounts, the level of discount that have been offered in some of these, I mean, service stations, that probably is the one that the DMR has picked up. It's quite, like, large compared to Mm. a normal discount that you'll find between comparable, I mean, stations. Who do you believe is uh, primarily responsible for this activity? Um, I think, look, uh, you can't pinpoint to people, but at least I know our members are complaining about the players who are undercutting them out there in the market because they are like, I mean, offering discounts that do not, I mean, make sense. But primarily, this is like people who are motivated. It's like greed, I mean, more than anything else. I mean, also at the same time, these are the people who are like, I mean, pocketing the differential because they are not motivating by really um, making I mean uh, price of diesel affordable mm-hmm. to the users because in any case it's going to damage their engine so it's all about making money for themselves because as you probably know that I mean the fuel levy and road extent fund in the price of diesel it amounts roughly to six rand per liter so if they like uh, mix paraffin and diesel the biggest chunk of that, it will be money that I mean should have been like gone to the state in a form of projects and fund and fuel. So they will pocket that because it means it's diesel that is not accounted for, it's not in their books. So it's just for them um, themselves right. to enrich themselves. How easy is it for filling stations to adulterate diesel with paraffin? We don't think I mean the adulteration itself it happens at a at a, at a site. It's happen outside in a depot in a remote location that's where they they will mix i mean diesel and paraffin and then once they have a, a, a blend they will then transport it to a service station so a service station like a, 
anybody who's in a service session industry, they will know if they are offered a good deal or mm. a deal that is too good to be true. That they will know that it can't be the 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 the, the, the real deal. But people will take chances. But it can't be anybody who's like concerned about their reputation because forget about being caught by government. The issue is that your customers, if they know about your practices, they will never come to mm. you again. What processes then or oversight mechanisms are lacking that allow such practices to occur at the depot location? These unscrupulous I mean, operators, I mean, they are very much aware of like uh, the capacity that exists within government systems because the dmre itself it has got inspectorate which is i don't think they've got more than 20 people for the entire country and they know for a fact that i mean for them to be caught it's uh, the chances are very remote mm. they will take a chance they know that the enforcement is lacking SAS also has got the inspectorate that look it from tax perspective to see if people are also mixing diesel with paraffin. But again, that inspectorate is like so tiny to deal with the uh, countrywide I mean, uh, problem. So how can consumers then identify if the diesel they're purchasing is adulterated? And are there immediate signs or tests that they can perform? Yeah, without complicating it, I mean, uh, if you are a diesel vehicle like like a owner, you have got a very good idea of the prices in the area where you normally drive, mm. and uh, you know, like I mean, because diesel is not really at the retail, I mean, level, it's not regulated. I mean, you will know that a a, 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 a particular service station on this side is normally like either cheaper or higher than this, but the difference you will know that it won't be that large between comparative stations. But the moment you pick up something that is, I mean, ridiculous, you just know that's a red flag. Mm. You should never, never entertain that. As much as, like, the cost of fuel is too high, don't get into temptation. And if the consumer suspects or confirms they've purchased uh, adulterated diesel, what must they do? So the DMRE has got uh, in their website, they've got an uh, email address and the, the number for the compliance team where you can report it there. Then that's when they will dispatch, I mean, like the inspector to go and look, have a look. I'm going to leave it there. Abafani Chifolaro, thank you very much for joining us, Executive Director of the South African Petroleum Industry Association. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. Now, you might be aware that two people have died after a residential building caught fire on the corner of Commissioner and Nugget Streets in the Johannesburg CBD. The fire broke out during the early hours of Sunday morning. It's another tragedy to hit the area, and political parties are now asking questions about ongoing maintenance as well as culpability. With us now is Nabutliam Tembu, Action SA, City of Johannesburg caucus leader. And first up, how does your party then assess this recent fire incident, particularly in terms of response and building safety? Look, last year, September, after the Osindiso fire broke out, we tried to submit two motions to council. One is to expropriate the hijack buildings and hand them to investors to convert them into affordable rental units. That's the first one. 
The second one, to recommend that council convert the sectional title buildings into social housing. And when this was presented in programming, it was blocked. And we were informed that there's a task team or commission of inquiry that was set up by Premier Panyaza to tackle this issue of hijack buildings. Months later, nothing has ha- nothing has happened. We have no feedback. And guess what? Another fire broke out in the city of Joburg. So the city seems like it's just reactive. There's no plan in place. Because surely if there was a plan, us as councillors would be the first to know about any new update mm. or any strategy that's in place. But what, we don't have any information. What, what are your views on the underlying causes of these fires? Look, the places that are occupied by... Some citizens and some foreign nationals are not the right place for human beings to occupy. Hey? So you find that a building will have shacks, number one. The safety there is questionable. You know, these are abandoned buildings. Some of them are city-owned um, facilities or, yes, city-owned facilities that the city is just not looking after. So people do as they please. They don't care about safety as long as they've got a shelter over their head and they can do whatever they want there. For them, it's fine. Um, if I can give you um, some feedback, Jeremy, this very same building that caught fire over the weekend, that place had prostitutes. Everyone knew that in Nugget Street, the building that's full of prostitutes, that's full of people who are selling drugs. But the city is taking so long in targeting these issues. Are there short-term preventative measures then that your party is proposing to mitigate this? Unfortunately, Jeremy, there are no short-term. This problem has been there for over 20 years now. Over 20 years. So if a problem has been going on or has been there for such a long time, there is no short-term solution. Uh, What we are asking also as Action SA is when there's NGOs that are working against the city, if only those NGOs can work with the city and if only national government can also come on board because we all knew, we all know that in those buildings we've got people who are here illegally and then we've got people who are here as South Africans. So we are asking Home Affairs to come and fix the illegal immigration issue that's happening in those buildings. We're asking our own government that please let's deal with the South Africans that have housing issues because we know there's that backlog of the RTPs. So let's be honest with our people, see if we can offer our South African temporary shelters. There seems to be a disconnect um, between the roles then and the responsibilities of national, provincial and local government in this issue. And it seems to fall squarely in the center. And that's probably the reason why we find ourselves in this position, surely. There is. There's a very big disconnect. I can say it looks like national is not prepared. You know, it's not prepared to come and help local government. Local government is struggling with this issue. Maybe one of the reasons why it's struggling is lack of leadership and for the fact that this has gone on for such a long time and no one has prioritized this issue apart from the former mayor, um, Mr. Hemen Mashaba. He prioritized this and he got called a lot of names, but we all know that he was successful in getting back some of the buildings in the inner city. And we believe up to date that let's expropriate some of these buildings, that the owners are not coming forward, and let's give them to 
investors. I mean, the inner city has become a slum. It's uh, a place where criminals thrive. Businesses are running away. This is not the hut of the country anymore. There's a, there's a very different there's a very different perspective though, isn't there, from the mayor? He says the city is winning the battle against hijacked buildings, and says so far 188 such buildings are being investigated. Do you believe him? I don't. I don't, Jeremy. And one of the reasons I don't is because out of the 188, he mentioned something like nine buildings that they have won the court case. But guess what? You, according to the is the Constitution of South Africa. You can't remove place people from one place and not give them another place to stay. And our reality is that we don't have anywhere to put them because they do not want to prioritize this. As I said, they are very reactive. So when something happens like this, he'll come to the media and tell them a nice story. But in reality, he won't tell you what they've done. He won't give you mm. in detail what have they done, especially him as the executive mayor, because he's supposed to hold his executives accountable. Nobutlim Tembu, we're going to leave it there from Action SA. Thank you very much. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. And finally on the program, sport and economics and local fight fans are still celebrating a win by Drikas Duplessis winning the UFC middleweight championship this past weekend in Canada. So what does this mean economically for the sport in terms of growth and how big is it both globally and in South Africa? Commentator and writer Simon Stevens is going to get right into the ring with a few answers. And firstly, Simon, how significant is this win for the growth of the sport in this country? I think it's important in terms of particularly for sponsorships, Jeremy. And the EFC have had a good broadcast reach, you know, with the state broadcaster in South Africa and MultiChoice for quite a few years now and haven't been able to uh, translate viewership, which has been very good in terms of their ratings, into blue chip sponsors. As an AFP, you know, EFC uh, at times giving their product away and their live broadcast array to try and leverage that sponsor revenue hasn't necessarily worked out sometimes as, as their business model. And now I think with Drickers to Perceive's win, I think some of the uh, parts of corporate South Africa have traditionally um, been supporting some of the main code sports um, in sub-Saharan Africa and now starting to look at the growth of MMA and also in terms of UFC's uh, revenue model. I mean, Endeavor, which owns the EFC, um, purchased it about five years ago uh, for what ended up being over $8 billion. So I think if corporate South Africa starts realizing the growth of MMA in South Africa um, and and the blossoming that's going to result from Drickers Duplessis' win, I think it might start turning things around for the industry and combat sports as a whole. And Simon Stevens, in terms of the type of audience that uh, the sport is attracting, both on television and at the arenas themselves, it's getting very big, isn't it? It's getting very big, and the demographic as well. I mean, I remember going back to an event in Durban in around 2006. So the sport's been around for a long time. I think South Africa kind of picked up and adopted the sport of MMA a lot earlier than more um, established uh, global markets today. 
And over that time since then, I've seen a change in the demographic. It usually has been perceived as, you know, a possible white sport. And now we're getting more uh, black middle class uh, demographic coming into the arenas, coming into the EFC Performance Institute. And now, you know, the majority of the athletes on the roster are people of color. And it's, it's changing the audience. It's changing the perception as well as in terms of the media people coming along, the podcasters, the journalists. Uh, it's changing all the time. And I can see the translation from uh, more working class to more middle class. And now there's like there's VIP packages for events you can get at other promotions. You can buy a table with bottle service that are going for thousands of thousands of rand. So just over the past couple of years, particularly since lockdown COVID, by the way, it's uh, you can see the change uh, has been really quite rapid. Can you explain to the uninitiated, and you're someone that spends time uh, on the side of the ring, sometimes even in the ring itself, what the attraction of the sport is? That's a good question. I think it's undiluted competition. I look back to when I was uh, watching a Curry Cup game in uh, Kings Park in Durban. It was the Sharks against the Bulls, and Ryan Kankowski was flying down the wing into the corner to score a try. At the same time he was flying down the wing, there was a bit of an upset near us in the, uh, on, on the Ungeni end, and uh, someone had spilt a beer, and there was a fight occurring in the stands. Everyone turned around to watch the fight, and we missed Kankowski scoring on the corner flag. And I think it's that, I think it's visceral. I think it switches into uh, an almost prehistoric Neanderthal part of our brain where, you know, we just love to see two guys uh, go to war. There's no lines. There's no offside. There's no pig's bladders being hoofed up a, a length of grass. There's the unified rules uh, for decency, you know, no eye gouging and no low blows and things like that. I mean, it's, it's, we've come a long way in terms of from the no holds barred era to it being a, a, a perfectly respectable sport these days. And I think it's undiluted competition. I think that's what it is. Um, it's so many things. It's visceral. And because there's so many ways in which to win and it's become a lot more safer as we've as we progressed as a sport i think it's there's always that come behind moment there's always that hail mary shot i was commentating in abu dhabi this weekend for ufc fight pass and we had several fights where some guy was 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 you know having the snot beaten out of him for three rounds and right at the end he pulls off this incredible submission win and comes from behind and the crowd go absolutely wild and i think that's that's what it switches into. I think there's a whole bunch of reasons as to your question why people are starting to switch on to MMA. And just a final one and a quick one. Is it a well-managed, regulated and audited sport? Not everywhere. Jem, to be honest with you, in South Africa, um, we've got MASA. We've had a governing body for many years, Mixed Martial Arts South Africa, which is affiliated with SASCOC. EFC, as Africa's largest promotion based in Johannesburg, they were the first signatory to WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency, and that's administered by SAIDS, the South African Institute for Drug-Free Sports. So in South Africa, we were the first country to adopt very stringent anti-doping measures before other countries around the world, even before the UFT. So in some ways, South Africa has actually been you know, a pioneer in certain aspects of the sport. Is it well governed? Well, fight sports, combat sports, sports in general, I'm not sure you can say yes to everything in all contexts. But I think as a young sport, I think it's actually led the way in many areas. Simon Stevens, thank you very much indeed.
And just before we go, other stories on our radar. The Daily Maverick is reporting that South African economist Tabi Lioka, who was exposed for allegedly not holding a PhD in economics from a top UK university, is now no longer a member of the Presidential Economic Advisory Council. And Israel's army has revised up its death toll and says a total of 21 soldiers have been killed in an attack in central Gaza in the past 24 hours. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.